0: Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday service. It's good to have you with us, whether you are on our audio versions on Spotify or uh, Apple Podcasts, or you're watching the video live stream on our website, faithonhill.com, or on our Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Just search at Faith on Hill. And uh, we meet in person every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. And we meet throughout the week in small groups uh, where we pray together, where we go over questions that are based off of Sunday's Bible study, and those meet throughout the week, and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for more information. I also want to say that right now we are going through still uncertain times, stressful times, times of pressure, times that it's not just what's going on right now, but it's everything's compiled of the tensions of the last several years. If you need prayer, and I'm finding more and more people need prayer, prayer, uh, If you need prayer, reach out. Adam at faithonhill.com is my email. Love to connect with you. Love to pray for you. We're going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew as Jesus begins his public ministry. So if you have a Bible, turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4. Well, Matthew chapter 4 begins after Jesus has been in the wilderness for over a month. For 40 days and 40 nights, he was in the wilderness by himself, fasting. And then after that time of fasting, he was tempted by the devil. And we talked about that last week, and you can uh, go back and look, and if you missed that, to see what was going on there. But it's been over a month since Jesus' baptism at the Jordan River. And now he's come out of the wilderness, out of that time of trial, And it says in verse 12, chapter 4, that when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Now, why? We think of Israel as one nation, the land of Israel. And ethnically, that was true in Jesus' day. The homeland of the Jewish people was what, relatively speaking, what we think of as the modern state of Israel. Politically, that wasn't the case, though. The Roman occupiers had divided Israel and the southern part of Israel, Jerusalem and Judea surrounding Jerusalem, was ruled by King Herod and his family, who were puppet kings, in place by the Romans. The northern part of Israel was overseen by a Roman governor. And so uh, Jesus came out of the wilderness, John the Baptist has been imprisoned by Herod, and so Jesus withdraws out of his political zone, out of Herod's political control zone, and he moves north. That's why in most of Jesus' public ministry, he ministers in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee, in these northern areas, and he does deal with Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes who come up from Jerusalem because they had functional or cultural authority among the people, but Herod had no political authority, and so if Jesus just says, hey, you know, I'm going to move north, it's, it's, a, it's a move of just practicality. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Natali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This prophecy, which was given hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, pretty much describes the area in which Jesus did the most of his public ministry. He would occasionally go down to Jerusalem to observe certain feasts and the Passover and that sort of thing, but he spent most of his public ministry in the north of Israel, around the Galilee, in what's called the Way of the Sea. So when you hear about him going to places like uh, Caesarea Philippi, that was out on the Way of the Sea, which was the main trade route, as it might sound, going along the Mediterranean. There was also the Way of the King, which was the other main travel and trade route, which was east of the Jordan River. Galilee of the Gentiles, These are all the areas where Jesus did the majority of his public ministry. It's also encouraging. It says in verse 16, The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. That's actually a very encouraging prophecy. Why? Because in Isaiah's day, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians. Galilee was Galilee of the Gentiles. The the northern Jewish kingdom had been conquered and taken away in chains, and non-Jewish Gentile settlers, conquerors, had come in and laid claim. So for the prophet to say, this is what God says, that there is coming a time when this part of the promised land that has been conquered and overwhelmed will again be a place where God's people dwell. That's a message of hope. And it's fulfilled in Jesus and his ministry there in this region that in Isaiah's day was conquered territory. That in Isaiah's day, hope had fled. The people living in the land of the shadow of death, they have just experienced war and waste and famine and everything that comes with that. And he says, there's coming a great light. And so that is a hopeful prophecy because maybe you look around the world and you say, oh my goodness, look at everything that's going on. Over here, there's this. Over there, there's that. Right there, there's this thing. And I don't even want to talk about that thing because I can't deal with it right now. To know that God is still working and he is not done working and that the darkness will not overcome the light. A source of great hope. Verse 17 says that from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has, not will, has come near. Every religion, every belief system, every philosophy, every faith, on some level, in some way, tells us to repent. Every every belief system tells you to repent. Whether it is uh, organized religion, like Islam, Mormonism, that there is something to repent of. um, You know, things like, um, you know, Buddhism with the reincarnation, uh, you know, always trying to attain a higher level of consciousness is essentially saying at each level we have to repent of the bad things and we'll do it over multiple lifetimes, whereas, like Islam says, repent. Because of this lifetime, every faith tells us to repent. Even secularism tells us to repent. You know, uh, uh, Marxism, Leninism, said repent of your capitalism, repent of your elitism, and turn to the masses. Even repent of your religion and turn to the masses. Every belief system, every belief system calls you to repent. That is not unique. But what creed or code or faith has God coming to you? Even in what we might call religious Christianity, which means it's religion, human religion, that takes the forms or the trappings of the Christian faith. It is about me doing something to be right before God. Me doing something so that God will forgive me. I I need to do this many acts of penance or I need to do that many stations of the cross. And if you come from an Orthodox or a Catholic background, I'm not trying to knock you. I'm just trying to point out human traditions that are not part of the Christian faith. They're just human traditions. I need to do this many mission trips. I need to go knock on this many doors and then I will have done my penance so that God will forgive me. That is me trying to get to God. I am struck again and again and again. I've been teaching the Bible for over 20 years. I've been following Jesus most of my life. I am struck repeatedly with how unique faith in Jesus is. The idea that we don't try to get to God, but that God has come near to us. I don't think we can fully grasp or appreciate how amazing that is. And as Jesus, God in human flesh, came near to people, it says in verse 18 that he was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were on a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called to them. And immediately they left their boat. So they jumped off the boat and swam to shore, and they left their father and followed him. So Jesus is going around preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he is calling people to himself. Come and follow me. Now, this isn't the first time they've met Jesus. How do I know this? John chapter 1 tells us that Andrew was down at the Jordan River where John was baptizing. And that after uh, John declared that Jesus was the Messiah, Andrew went and grabbed his brother Peter and said, come and see, could this be the Messiah? Uh, There is some indication, and I don't have time to get into it, but there's some indication from Mark's gospel that James and John might have been related to Jesus. Through their mother. Whether that's true or not, the idea is, is this is not the first time they have met Jesus, but this is when they left what they were doing to follow Jesus. Now, the story gets muddied a little bit. Why? Because at the moment that they are called to follow Jesus, they are also called to serve Him. Here's what I mean by that. All people, every human who has ever lived is called by God to repent, turn away from their sins, and to follow Jesus. Every person, including you right now, me right now, we are called to turn away from our sins, our rebellion, and to follow Jesus. Once we do that, then God says, welcome to my family, welcome to my kingdom. I have a work for you to do. Sometimes, sometimes a person is told what that work is from almost the word go. Peter, Andrew, James, John, come, follow me You're fishing for fish right now. Well, I've got a plan for you to fish for people. I want you, like a fisherman throws out a net to catch fish, I want you to preach so that people will be brought into the kingdom of heaven. The Apostle Paul had a similar thing. He was on his way to the city of Damascus to persecute and imprison and even murder Christians. And on his way to the city of Damascus, Jesus appeared to him in a vision miraculously. And he repented. And he was blinded by this vision. And so three days later, God told a man in Damascus named Ananias, I want you to go and I want you to pray for this man so that he could receive his sight. And I want you to tell him the things that he must do for me. So Peter and Andrew from like word go, Jesus says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of people. You were fishing for fish, now you're going to fish for souls. Paul, it wasn't the first day, but it was day three. He gets told, hey, this is what God has for you. This is the thing you have. But for other people, it's not the same. Uh, You can look in the book of Acts and you can see that Uh, Ananias and Sapphira, Barnabas, Stephen, Philip, these people in the early church, women and men who just said, I want to follow Jesus. And then later on, God clarified for them their calling, what they were supposed to do, the work that God had for him or them or her. And what can happen is we hear this and we see, oh, wait, God told them right away what to do. Is that what I'm supposed to do? Or, or should I feel bad if I don't have a clarity in my calling? What's my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing? Truthfully, I did not have a clarity in my calling right away. I became a Christian at a very young age. And I had no desire, uh, I had no interest in being a pastor. Like I never thought when I was like in fifth grade or when I was in middle school, I, if you had told me I was going to be a pastor, I would have said, that's crazy. I wouldn't think that, right? I wanted to do the standard things. i am going to be a fireman or I'm going to be an astronaut or I'm going to join the Navy, right? Like just, just kind of things like when you're a kid thinking about what you want to do. I had just these different thoughts about things. I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a pastor. In 1998, I felt a unique call, is the word we might use. I just felt an imperative. I had to go to Russia on a mission trip that my church was taking. And so in 1998, I went to Russia. And while I was there, I knew that I was supposed to serve God in some specific way. But even then, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to be a pastor. I thought maybe I'll be a missionary or maybe I'll do music as a ministry. Um, and then in 2001, I moved to England to be uh, the worship leader at a church. And I thought, this is great. I'm doing music and I'm doing missions work. This is what I feel, felt called in Russia three years earlier to do. And while I was there, God began to clarify my calling. And music has been a part of my calling. And missions has been a part of my calling. And I still go you know, to Mexico and do things like that. But as I was there, God began to clarify, no, I want you to teach the Bible. And, and, and as that has gone on um, in the last 10 years, God's clarified even more, not just teach the Bible, but I want you to care for people and I want you to walk with people through things. And, and these are the things that I do now, but that's my calling. And it didn't happen right away. Whereas I have known other people who became Christians and it was like, they just knew I'm supposed to do this and they wasn't for years later that God sent them, but they knew right away, whereas it took me years to kind of clarify what I was supposed to do. The, the, point, is, the point is that God called them, follow me. And for them, he, the work that he had for them was right away. But for many of us, it takes time to clarify our callings. I am so thankful to see how God is using people in our church, how people in our church are telling their neighbors about Jesus, how people in our church are supporting people in their community, how people in our church are praying, how people in our church are serving. I could start just going down the list. of pe- This person's doing that, and that person's doing that thing, and we're seeing how God is clarifying some people's callings, and they didn't know what they were supposed to do, but it's kind of becoming clear. This is the thing I'm supposed to do, and for others... They're in a process of of clarifying their callings. And it's difficult right now because for some of us, what we would want to do, we can't do in the same way during this season of pandemic, but we kind of have a sense, hey, once we're past this, I kind of have a sense this is what we're supposed to do. But Jesus preached repent and then he called people to follow him. I don't think we can understand fully what it meant for James and for John to hop out of that boat and to leave their father. I don't think we can fully understand it. Because in our culture, we do what we want to do. In their culture, you wouldn't do anything that would like leave the family business. What? Are are you sure? Do this thing. Leave. I have obligations. What a huge thing it was for them to do that. To leave everything behind and follow Jesus. But they did it. And let me say this. Whatever God is calling you to do, individually, or for us to do, collectively as a church, it's worth it it's worth it. Whatever God is calling us to do as a church is worth it. Now, in verse 23, it says that Jesus went through the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. Now, this wouldn't necessarily be Syria as we would think of it today, but that region north of the uh, the Golan Heights, um, where, you know, kind of north of the Galilee is what's what's being talked about here. People brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from the Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So this is sort of an overview of what is going on in Jesus' ministry. He's going from village to village and town to town, and he is preaching and teaching in their synagogues. He is getting some name recognition. People are becoming aware of him, and they are bringing to him those who are afflicted physically, spiritually, mentally, and they are bringing those who are afflicted to him for healing. So Jesus kind of has this model. He preaches and teaches. And he went where he could. He went into their synagogues. Why? Because in those days, they might have a synagogue, but no rabbi. Or they might have somebody who could lead the meeting week to week, but they were sort of like, just like the 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 village headman, and then a you know somebody who was a rabbi or or you know what we would think of as like an ordained minister might travel through on a circuit, and so maybe like once a month uh, they would get teaching or encouragement from this kind of preacher. Now we have a history of that here in Oregon. Uh, If you don't know the story of our own church, right, that as people came west on the Oregon Trail and they settled here in the Portland area and in the Willamette Valley, they sent letters back east to the groups of churches that they had been a part of. And they said, hey, we're here and we're settling and there's a community forming and we don't have a church we just have our Bible, and so we read the Bible, we pray together. On Sunday, we rest and we uh, worship God as we can, but we don't have a church, and we don't have a minister. And so for our group of churches, they sent four men west on the Oregon Trail, and they came, and in these communities, they began to go from town to town doing exactly what Jesus Did. And so in some places, uh, there was already sort of a community, and so they would maybe meet in a house, or then they'd build a simple kind of church building like you'd see in a movie from the Old West, right? And then, you know, they would go, hey, this Sunday I am in this town, and then I'm going to travel from Salem out to Florence on the coast, and I'll be out there next week. And then they'd come from Florence up to Albany, and they'd be there next week, and then they'd go back to Salem. So every three weeks they were in a town. Or in some cases, uh, they would go, you know, quicker than that. Um, so we have this history of a circuit. In fact, Faith on Hill was founded in 1876 uh, by one of these original four preachers, and they came and they did that. And then, as more God raised up more people to lead his church. Uh, We we got to the place where we don't have to, at the moment, have a circuit, although there is conversations in some of our more rural areas, to go back to this model. It's a valid model. Jesus did it. I know a guy who lives in rural Montana, and on Sunday mornings, he spends hours on the road. He starts at one church, and he does the church service there at 8.30 a.m., and then he drives an hour to the next town, and at you know 10:45 they start their Sunday morning service and then he drives 2 hours to the third church and ministers to them and then comes home and he spends hours on the road every Sunday because these communities might have like 50 people and they, and they have one church in town and so he he is ministering to these three churches because that's just what the, what's necessary, and uh, you know talking to leaders in other groups of churches that's something that they're dealing with in Wyoming in North and South Dakota, in rural Montana and Idaho, and we're starting to talk about it in our group of churches uh, for some of our like coastal churches and some of the small towns on the coastal range. It's a totally valid thing. Uh, it, there's a part of me that wonders, will I someday pastor Faith on Hill and maybe like one other church as, as these things have become necessary? I'm not saying that's a plan and there's no, nobody's going, hey, Adam, will you do this? I'm just talking about like, these are, this is a valid model of doing church, but he would go from town to town and he would preach and he would teach. And I would have loved, I would have loved to hear a Bible study taught by Jesus. Oh man, someday. But he would preach and he would teach. What's the difference between preaching and teaching? Well, for some people, it just means if I get really excited, I'm preaching, but if I'm a little more chill, then I'm teaching. What preaching is, is proclaiming, and what teaching is, is explaining. And so, when I preach, there are times when I'm preaching, I'm proclaiming the truth of God, I'm proclaiming the good news of Jesus, and there are times where I'm teaching. I'm, I'm explaining something about the word of God, about God's plans for people, about God's will. And, and I probably do both in a sermon or a Bible study or a podcast or whatever. And as he is preaching and teaching, he's inviting people to come and follow him. Now, I don't invite anybody to follow me. You don't want to follow Adam. But I'm inviting people to follow Jesus with me and to follow Jesus with us and saying, hey, we are doing what we think God's called us to do. Let's come together and do it together. So Jesus preaches and he teaches. He invites people to come and to follow him. And then he says, What do you need? Now, can I say it's this third step that as a church we are clarifying in this season? What does our community need? How is it that God has called us to serve him uniquely in this community? And there are ways that we have helped. We, you, know, you see how people are connected uh, you know, individually. You know, we have people in the church that work with um, you know, helping kids, like with the Toy and Joy program. Or we have people that, that have a unique ministry to prayer. Or there's people that have an encouragement ministry, and they're just going around encouraging people all the time, or they're connecting with their, uh, their neighborhood in a unique way. Uh, I feel like God's given us an open door at View Acres Elementary. Um, how can we serve our community? But he looks around and he says, what do you need? And we know that there was a lot of demonic activity happening in that moment, in that time, and in that place. What's happening here and now? That's the thing that the church always has to readdress. What do the people in this community need? They first and foremost need the gospel of Jesus. But then, hey, somebody comes and says, hey, I need help. How can we help? And, you know, one of the things in the last several years that God's given us to do, we're not a rich church. But we've kept some people in their homes. We've kept the lights on for a few families. And, and I don't think that's a small thing. I, I don't think it's a small thing that as a church we've opened our doors to Scopus Christian School so that there's a homeschooling co-op that is meeting a need for kids who could not succeed in the public schools nor could do they do particularly well homeschooling. And, and I, some of these stories, it's not my story to tell, but I'll tell you, I'm, I'm hearing stories of how God is using them and, and, and we're part of partnering with them. So what do they need? That's what he says. he says. He comes and he heals people. His point of ministry wasn't to heal people, just like I don't think our point of ministry is to be sort of a charitable organization, but we can look around and we can say, what do you need? If you want to read a book on this, I highly recommend the book Generous Justice by Tim Keller. Um, I think it talks a lot about how churches can bring and be gospel-focused, be Jesus-focused, and still then be involved in social justice issues in a way that doesn't get us lost in the weeds. Because in the history of the church, there are churches that have meant really well, and they start off gospel-focused, but then they get involved in social issues, and then the next thing you know that the gospel's been forgotten, and all they seem to care about is these social issues. Or churches that say, we don't want that, so we're only going to focus on the preaching and the teaching, and we are going to ignore the needs of the community around us. Why not both? Why not bring the good news of Jesus and then look around and say, hey, what's the need right now? How can we help right here where we're at? He was teaching, he was preaching, and there was action, and it's all connected. You know, he went where the people were. The people gathered in the synagogues on a Saturday morning. That's where he went. I want to be where people are, which has been tricky since we're supposed to, you know, the last couple years, it was like, how do we social distance? But we can still say, how, how are we where people are? I want to be there and doing what God's called me to do. And that's the, the good word for us, I think, is, is just as a church, to remember we preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus We want to explain the word of God as best we can to the people around us so that they could know how to live in a way that God wants, in a way that we are designed for, in a way that leads to our blessing and our flourishing. And then we want to be active in saying, how can we help? What can we do? What work has God given for us? I want to say thank you for joining us this Sunday. Would you stick around for a moment and pray with us as we end our time together? so that we could say, God, this is what you've given us from your word this morning. Help us to respond to it. Let's pray together. You know, Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6 say, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's saying I pray that God gives you guys like-mindedness towards each other so that together as a church you can glorify God. Let's pray that this morning. Father, we we've heard from you from your word that we're to preach we're to call, and we're to serve. Help us to have the same spirit, the same mind, to to care about each other and to value each other so that in that we can glorify you, that we can worship you by being united together. Lord, I pray that you would give us vision as a church in 2022. How do we serve you? We know to proclaim Jesus We know to follow Jesus, but what's the unique work you have for us in this time and in this place? Pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. God bless you, and we'll see you this week in the small groups.